Thanks for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. My name is Brad and I'm the lead campus pastor and primary preaching voice here at Cornerstone Church Airdrie. We believe that the God who spoke so clearly all through the pages of scripture is still speaking to his kids today. So if it's me who's speaking to you or someone else on this recording, as you listen, we pray that you would know God, know his hope, know his purpose, and know his power. Enjoy the message. Now we see streams in the desert, rivers in the wasteland. This morning, if you'd like to be with us in Scripture, you can turn to Genesis chapter 25. Genesis chapter 25. This week we're beginning what I think, what I hope, what I believe, what I trust will be both a very powerful sermon series but also a very interesting sermon series as we look at one of the most interesting lives in all of Scripture. We're going to be looking at at the life of Jacob. Now, Jacob exists in sort of this pantheon of Old Testament reference, that the beginning of God's covenant relationship with people, and we're going to talk about that more in just just a moment, because we have to understand that to understand Jacob. But one of the ways that God would identify himself, one of the ways that people would identify God in the Old Testament to talk about the Hebrew God, they would say things like, he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Or, or God would say, I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That means your life is a pretty big deal. That, that if God is using you as a reference point, that's something. Now, now for us, we know that scripture will say that, that our names are written on his hand. And, and so he carries them with us. But, but the life of Jacob, one of the things that makes it so fascinating is that God uses Jacob as an identifier or, or a marker. That It's a pretty big deal. But yet, as we journey through the life of Jacob, what we're going to discover is that if you were to think of the lives that have been lived throughout human history, that God would choose to say, I'm the God of this guy, that Jacob's life is more than just a little bit different than that. That that we would look and we would say, I'm the God of Mother Teresa, and I'm the God of... And you can sort of have these, like, Billy Graham and, and these, like, identifiable, like, pillars of, like, wow, God. And then... But then you see that God says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And as you read through the lives of of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, we're going to discover at least this sermon series, The Life of Jacob, it was deeply flawed from the very beginning. From, From the very beginning of the story of Jacob, it's not that he's this great figure of faith and belief and trust and a role model and all of these things is is when God says, I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, it's not meant to just elevate these people to somehow this level of superiority, but it's, it's almost to give us encouragement that God is saying, look, if I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, I can be your God too. That if I'm the God of these folks, and then if we look at the lives that they lived, and we're going to look and look at some of the gunk of Jacob's life over the next few weeks, 
If he's the God of Jacob, he can be the God of you. And you don't have to feel unqualified or, or feel distant or feel unable to become close to God because of, look at all the things I've done. We're going to look at the things that Jacob has done and at the very most or very least, however you want to phrase it, it should hopefully allow you to see some relationship between your life and theirs to be able to go, okay, these are, these are some people that I can identify with, maybe not directly, but at least in the grand, grander scheme. But to, to, to jump right into the story of Jacob is difficult because so much that happens in the life of Jacob is, is context that's all around everything that's happening in Jacob, the re, or Jacob's life. The reason why he does things is because of who his parents are and who his grandparents are and, and where they fit in the story of God and his, his rescue plan for people. So I'm going to try and set some context for you, the context of Genesis chapter 1 to Genesis chapter 24. But we're going to try and do this very quickly. We're not going to do one sermon just on all of that. We're going to try and do this in like a minute, but, but we're going to try and set the context to bring you sort of up to speed so that we can understand together why some of these things are taking place. Uh, Genesis chapter 1 begins with the creation of everything, creation of the world, creation of everything in it, the creation of mankind, the establishment of God's relationship with people, and the establishment of, of the, the specialness of human life in God's eyes. And then in Genesis chapter 3, um, so we have these three chapters of this perfected world that God has made, and it takes human beings all of three chapters to mess it up. And in Genesis chapter 3, I guess really it takes us two chapters because Genesis chapter 3 begins with us messing it up. But Genesis chapter 3, we begin to mess things up and we see sin enter into the world. We see Adam and Eve make choices to, to listen to voices other than the voice of God in their lives. And they make choices which compromise themselves and bring sin in. And we see just the... the de-evolution of the human condition in relationship to God, where we go from the compromising of like, well, did God really say that? Down to murder. Quickly. You know, that, that, that there goes from no sin to compromised sin to, to just about as bad as it gets fairly, fairly quickly in the story of humanity. And up until Genesis 11, what we see so from Genesis chapter 3 to Genesis chapter 11 is we see this moment in human history where, where we just see the, the ravages of sin in humanity, where we just see the toll that sin takes on life. So we see the sin and we see the fallout and all the things that happen because of that sin. Then in Genesis chapter 12, we have this incredible pivotal moment where God begins to change the story where we have the perfect creation, we have sin, and then in Genesis chapter 12, we have the beginning of the redemptive story of this, this fallen, broken world, this pivotal moment where God begins to tell his rescue story of humanity, and it begins with a man named Abram. And, and we don't know much about Abram, we're just introduced to him via God's call on his life, but, but God calls Abram to follow him and to live for him, and he makes him three promises, and it's important to remember these three promises, because they're going to inform how all of this stuff is perceived, or how, how Jacob is perceived in life and his family and everything. He makes three promises that God says to Abram, if you follow me, I'm going to do these three things for you. The first thing he says is that I will always be with you. And he says that I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you. I will be your God. We will be together. The second, 
He says that he would give him a family that would turn into a great nation. And in fact, what he says about the size of his family is that it would number the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the earth, that, that he would have just this incredible family that would become this great nation in the world. And then the third promise that he says is that not only will you have a great family that will turn into a great nation, but the whole world would then be blessed by your family. That it wouldn't just be that you would have this great family, but that you're, you would have this incredible family and the whole world would be blessed by the existence of this family. And so Abram, whose name is later changed to Abraham, that might bring some more context for you, um, follows God. And ultimately, God's promise to Abraham of this family that would turn into to a nation results in one son. That we're gonna, your descendants are going to outnumber the stars in the sky and the grains of sand on the earth. And he has one, one son. A, a son named Isaac. And Isaac and his son, or Isaac and, Isaac and his wife, Rebecca, have two sons, Jacob and Esau. And that brings us very quickly, without a lot of detail, into Genesis chapter 25 in the story of Jacob. So God begins his rescue plan with a man named Abraham, and now we're going to look at the life of his grandson, Jacob. And so we pick up the story of Jacob in Genesis chapter 25, starting at verse 19, where it says, this is the account of the family line of Abraham's son Isaac. Abra or Abraham became the father of Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he married Rebekah, daughter of Bethuel of Aramen from Paddan, and Aram the, and sis, or Param Adon, and sister of Laban the Amorin. Isaac prayed to the Lord on behalf of his wife because she was childless. The Lord answered his prayer and his wife, Rebekah, became pregnant. There's this incredible theme of, of God's promise to Abraham of I'm going to build you this, you're going to have this incredibly large family. And they can't have kids until God provides one miraculously. And then his son Isaac, who, who this, this family line continues through and this promise continues of you're going to have this incredible family. And then they can't have kids until God provides one miraculously. And so God prays, or, or Isaac prays for his wife, and, and so she becomes pregnant. The, the, it says the babies jostled each other within her. Now, something that, that can happen in Scripture is that, that when we translate things sometimes, it's hard for us to, to in, in our language, fully like replicate what the wording of the original text means, what, what, what sometimes things say. And sometimes we try to use maybe sometimes a little too fancy language when it comes to our translations in the Bible, or, or we try to clean things up maybe just a little bit. Um, but when we translate the, the expressions that are here, when it, when it says that the babies jostled, oh no, by the way, it, she's having twin boys, when it says the babies jostled within her, the original thought or picture is given that the babies, literally what it means is that the babies were crushing the insides of her. The, the, this is the literal raw graphic understanding of what she was going through, being pregnant with these boys, is that she was in incredible amounts of pain. That, that the boys that were inside of her, they, they, they 
fought with each other essentially so much inside the womb that her insides were just getting beaten up constantly and consistently. And even to the point where she says, she said, why is this happening to me? Why is what we prayed, God, would you, would you send us a baby? And God sends us a baby and he looks like maybe he sent us two babies. And this pregnancy is awful. I'm in so much pain. And it says that she went and inquired to the Lord. Now, verse 23 is one of these, just we'll, we'll, we'll talk about it in a sec. The Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two people from within you will be separated. One people will be stronger than the other, and the older will serve the, the younger. Essentially, God says to her, you think the pregnancy is bad? Just wait till they're born. You think that they, they, they may be causing you a lot of physical pain right now, but... Just you wait to see what's going to happen. The fighting that's going on inside of you, that's going to be the story of their entire lives. And the two nations that God talks about, it's not just a metaphor. From Jacob would come the Israelite people, and from his brother Esau would come the Edomite people. And if you read through the Old Testament, what you discover is that the Edomite people were consistently and constantly in conflict with the Israelite people. That, that when God says they're going to be at each other and they're going to they're have these problems, it's true. It's not just a metaphor, it's real. Now, verse 24 says, when, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb. We, we sort of got there already. We, we were able to connect those dots. Verse 25, the first to come out was red. And his whole body was like a hairy garment. So they named him Esau. Now, sometimes in the Bible, when you read people's names and you look into what their names mean, it's these incredible pictures of like their destiny, who they are, the power that's within them, the, the importance, the importance or, or the role their life is going to play. And so they, they name their son Esau. And do you know what Esau means? We essentially read it. Esau means red hairy garment. Verse 26. After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's heel. So he was named Jacob. Again, sometimes in the Bible, names are this incredible symbol and picture of someone's life and their character and who they are and how God's going to use them and the roles they're going to fulfill. Do you know what Jacob means? Heel grabber. No one will ever accuse Isaac and Rebekah of having the most creative names for their children. The babies are born and literally the first identifiable thing about them is that that's your name. The first one comes out and he's red and hairy, so we name him Red and Hairy. The second one comes out and he's grabbing his brother's heel, so we're going to name him Heel Grabber. Now Jacob would go on, and the name Jacob would go on to have lots of significance, but prior to this, that significance wasn't there. The, the, the significance all comes from him originally being named Jacob. So we have Rary Head, or Rary Head Guy, Hairy Red Guy, and Heel Grabber. The two main characters of our story this morning, Esau and Jacob, 
red hairy guy, and heel grabber. Now, to understand what's about to take place, because we're about to take a jump in the story into the first sort of interaction that we have recorded between Jacob and Esau. But to understand what's about to happen, we need to understand something about life in their home. You see, the promise that God had made to their grandfather, the promise that God had made to Abram, to Abraham, to, 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 to be a, this great nation that God would fight for them and that they would be, the whole world would be blessed through them, that would have been talked about at home. It wouldn't have been kept a secret from, from their family. It somehow wouldn't have been a distant thought. Mom and dad would have talked about the promises that God made to their grandfather and would have told the story of the incredible, miraculous conception that was Isaac and the story of this incredible faithfulness and goodness of God. And then for Jacob and Esau, the same, that God was incredibly faithful and this miraculous, and we believe that God is fighting for us and the story of the blessing and that God has said through our family, the whole world is going to be blessed and we're going to have this huge family and it's going to be amazing and it's going to be incredible. And so Jacob, the heel grabber, and Esau, the red hairy guy, would have grown up knowing that this was in some part going to be part of their story and, and their destiny as well. And, and what we would need to know and understand is that the, uh, what we would need to know and understand is, is culturally the idea of family blessings and all of that. And in the culture of the time, what would be understood is that blessings and, and family lineage and all of those things would be passed down through the firstborn. That that was how all of this works. And we're going to talk about in a minute that, in fact, the, the, the blessings or the, the things that came with being the firstborn. But that, that as they talked, as, as, as Isaac and Rebecca talked about how God's blessing our family and God's going to do all these amazing things, what would have been understood would have been, well, it's God, God's going to bless our family. Really, God's going to bless Esau. Because he was older, only by a couple seconds, but he was older. And that, that is the understanding of, of what's going on. Except that God had told Rebecca before the boys were born that it's going to be a little different. That your boy's relationship is somehow going to be backwards. That the boys, the boys would have known about these promises and blessings that God had made to their family line and understood that it was going to be through Esau that these things would be fulfilled. And yet, somehow, Rebecca had been told by God, but actually the older is going to serve the younger. And so there's lots of things at play here. But what we can see over the next couple of verses is that Esau and Jacob really understood that the blessings went through the, older, the oldest, the firstborn. And we see that perhaps the desire that Jacob, who probably had lived his life knowing that he was that close to being first, the desire that he had to have the blessing be his and not his brother's. And, and he comes out of the womb knowing perhaps that his destiny was always going to be number two. Even though it was just by that much. And if he's ever going to change his destiny, if he's ever going to be able to live outside of the shadow of his brother, if he's ever going to be able to live outside of, of always being number two, then he's going to have to do something to make that happen. He's going to have to fix this. 
Now in your Bible, we're introduced to the boys at birth and then it just moves forward in verse 20, from verse 26 to verse 27. All it really says is, and the boys grew up. But it's actually a fairly significant amount of time that's passed here. Some, some scholars peg the boys as being as old as 50 or 60 years old. Now, we don't know that. Um, there, there are some clues inside the text as we read through it where you can see that and some cultural things. So I, I don't know that they were that old, but, but just I want to let you know that it's not somehow like two weeks later. That, that enough time has passed for the establishment of these boys and their lives and who they are, that they're not six and seven years old, that they're, they're older. They're, they, they are probably at least full-grown men by this point. So verse 27 says, The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country, while Jacob was content to stay home among the tents. Now something that, that can often be drawn out of this that's not necessarily correct is that sometimes we can ascribe masculinity or difference in masculinity between the boys. That, that Esau was this hunter, brave. He would go out and do things and, and Jacob would, would stay home with mom. And, and we, can, we can ascribe different things to this verse based on who they are, but, but the reality is, is we don't know any of that. Um, as, as, we, as we will discover a little bit, Jacob, or, or Isaac and Rebekah, you know, Abraham was really well off. And, and so Isaac and Rebekah were really well off. They had lots of money, lots of possessions, lots of cattle, and lots of all these things. And so what, what probably the relationship looked more like wasn't just that one boy was out being brave and doing manly man things, and the other boy was at home just hanging out with mom was probably that Jacob was out and, and did, or Isaac was out those things, but Jacob probably managed the family. That when he stayed home among the tents, that he probably existed in kind of like a, a foreman kind of capacity. That, that everything that happened needed to have somebody making sure it was happening. And it was probably Jacob who did a lot of that. But we see an interesting family dynamic that's come out of as the boys have grown and developed their own personalities and their own way of doing things and become their own men. What we discover in verse 28 is that the family has really ended up with this very bizarre family dynamic where it says, Isaac, so dad, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebecca, she loved Jacob. The boys have, have grown up and, and they, they become almost like mirror images of each other. They're, they're, they're like the opposites of each other. And I know that, that for some families, when you have kids, you can see that. That like they're, they're, they're related, but they couldn't be more different for, for your kids. And that's, that's what they're experiencing. They have different priorities, different preferences, different attitudes. And it's started to affect even their relationship with their parents. Now... How many parents here today know that if you give preferential treatment to one child over the others, it's always a recipe for success? It's always a good idea to play favorites. It's always good to make sure the kids know which one you like the most. Or maybe it's not. But Jacob and or, um, Isaac and Rebecca. Their kids know. 
They know who's dad's favorite. They know who's mom's favorite. And, and the, in this family, this sibling dynamic that began at the womb is, is continuing all these years later. And it's even caused a shift in the family dynamic as a whole. We're not really given any reason why Rebecca loved Jacob more. Maybe she remembered what God had said of like, your youngest is going to rule over your oldest. And, and so she knew what would happen. And, and so she kind of just had always had an affinity for Jacob because God had made this promise over his life. We don't know. Maybe it's because he was home more and there just had grew in relationship that way. We don't know. But we are told why Isaac liked Jacob more. Because the boy could cook. Classic dad. The fastest way to dad's heart through his stomach. And because Jacob could provide him with all of this amazing food, dad was like, that's my boy. That's my boy. He's my guy. We're together. Him and me, me and him, right on. We're going to do this thing together. But we have this, this rift inside of the family between Jacob and Esau. And so we come to the next part of the story, verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking some stew, Esau came home from the open country famished. He was starving. He was hungry. He needed something to eat. And he said to Jacob, quick, let, let me have some of that red stew. I'm famished. That's why he was also called Edom, is, is what scripture will say. No, that may mean nothing to you, but the word Edom just means red. So, so Jacob, the, or Esau, the boy who was born red and hairy, who seems to have an affinity for red stew, his nickname was Red. That's why he became to be known as Edom. He was called Red. Verse 31. Jacob replied, First, sell me your birthright. It's an expensive bowl of stew. <laughs> you know, the, 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 that escalated quickly. That was not, hey man, what do you got? What do you want to trade? It was like, we're going all the way, zero to 100, first, first entry into negotiation. I want your birthright. Look, I'm about to die, Esau said. What good is this birthright to me? I'm going to die anyway. You're going to be the oldest in a minute if you don't give me the stew. So, so I, I guess what, what does it matter to me? But Jacob said, swear to me first. So Esau swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob. So Esau sells his birthright to his brother Jacob for what amounts to stew if it's red stew, it's probably essentially a bowl of beans or lentils. It's probably lentil stew is essentially what it, what it comes out. Now, maybe you enjoy lentils. I don't know, but he must really enjoy lentils. Now, in our culture today, as I'm the oldest, I guess I could say, sadly, we don't have the same understanding of what a birthright means. <laughs> but in that culture... Being the firstborn was very important. It meant, right out of the gate, what it meant to be the firstborn was that you got a double portion of the inheritance of what everybody else got. Can I get an amen? That's right. Amen. Right, mom? Amen, mom. Come on, dad. Amen. You know, they, they got a double portion of whatever. So, so if, if you had, say, Jacob and Esau, two brothers, say there was nobody else. We, you, you, you would take whatever Jacob or whatever Jacob would get, Esau would get twice that amount. Right out of the gate. That, that just, just at the very beginning, if you were born first, 
if, if they had, say, in our dollars, they had $300,000 to divide between the boys. Right out of the gate, Jacob gets 100000 Esau gets 200000 Just because he was born first, even though it was by seconds. That was part of what being the firstborn meant. So when everything was divided up between the kids, what mom, when mom and dad died, the oldest got double what everyone else got. And it didn't matter how many kids there were, the kid two through kid whatever, the firstborn got double what each one of them would have gotten. And it also meant that if you were the firstborn, you would be the first, you would be the first in line to lead the family. That, that the, the family dynamic was shaped around who was the oldest. So, so in that time, you know, families would live together and, and you would have these large groups of, of, of families of, of, you know, you'd live with your, your parents and your brothers and your sisters and their kids and their kids and their kids. And whoever was the oldest, when, when the patriarchs and the matriarchs would move on, whoever the oldest was immediately assumed that role. It didn't matter what personality dynamics there were. It was just you immediately became the new head of the family. The oldest now becomes the boss. Everybody listens to you. You are in charge of the whole family. And it was also a place of honor. You carried the family name and heritage. That, that when people would come to, to speak to your family, when people would give gifts to your family, when you were as important as, as Abraham and Sarah were, and by extension Isaac and Rebecca, and now Jacob and Esau, when people would come to bless your family, you got that. They didn't want to talk to your brothers. They didn't want to talk to, I mean, don't even talk about sisters. Back then, you know, women, they didn't fit into this at all. But for the, like, even the boys, if you were the second born, Nobody wanted to talk to you. The prestige, the honor, the importance all fell on the firstborn. And I think somehow we've lost something in that. Or maybe not. Maybe it's better. Um, but in the face of all of this, in the face of this being the knowledge that the boys have of who they are and what they are, Esau comes back in from work and he is hungry. Really hungry. And he wants something to eat. And, and here again is another place where, where the translation really doesn't do this justice. With, that we have Abraham coming in and he says, I'm so hungry, please give me a little bit of your stew. But essentially, when you read in the Hebrew, the translation, essentially Jacob just kind of storms into, or Esau, sorry, storms into the room and just kind of says, red stuff. That's it. He just kind of looks and red stuff. That's what he wants. He essentially just says red stew or red stuff. Kind of, you know, that, that like, almost like caveman-y, Cro-Magnon man kind of just storms in and is just like, me, red stuff. That, that he's hungry and, and he he's, he's just wants to eat and this is his, everything that he is at this moment bubbling up. And, and he just storms into the tent and says red stuff. And, and Jacob sees on a moment he could seize. Because he's got something his older brother wants. And as we talked about, and, and by extension you can maybe sort of understand, there isn't a whole lot of times in life where the younger brother has something the older brother wants. That, that wouldn't just be like the older brother able to say, I want that, and mom and dad would say, well, it's kind of his now. That, that this is a moment where there's just Jacob and Esau, and Esau or Jacob has something Esau wants, and Esau takes his shot. You know, he's going he's to take his shot and just go for it. 
Jacob isn't going to let this moment slip by. And he says to his brother, I'll give you the bowl of stew. If you give me your birthright, I will give you this now. If you give me your everything later on. Give up your future, your destiny, and everything you could be. All the blessings, all the promises, all the God that we know about in our family history for a bowl of red stuff. For a moment of satisfaction. Give me all of your future for a moment right now. Who would do such a thing? Who would throw everything away for a moment? Who would throw away all of their future and everything that they could have and be for the satisfaction of just the present? The answer to that in this moment, of course, is Esau. This is the choice he makes. But this isn't the first time somebody's made a choice like this. In the story of Adam and Eve, they're given a choice between all that God has said and promised and told them, all they had experienced, everything that was good and right and perfect in the world, and a piece of fruit. Their whole future, everything they could imagine, living in paradise with God, or a piece of fruit. And they chose fruit. They chose the fruit. And it wouldn't be the last time either. Think of King David and him being up on his roof and he sees this beautiful woman and in a moment of indulgence he exchanges the future well-being of his family and his kingdom and his nation to satisfy a momentary urge. Who would make a choice like this? Who would make a choice to to say, I'm going to look at what is, is the momentary and the long-term and choose the momentary. I'm sure glad we're not like that. I'm sure glad we don't, we don't make those same kind of choices in our lives. That, that we would look and somehow go, you know, I know that the long-term consequences of this could be really severe. And, and I know that I could, could, could have lots of fallout, but I'm going to choose that now. Thank you that humans aren't like that, hey? But then we have this picture of of Jesus from Matthew chapter 4. When Jesus had gone into the wilderness to fast for 40 days. What that means, if you're not familiar with with those terms, is, is Jesus, living in the middle of the desert in one of the hottest places on earth, went out into the desert and didn't eat for 40 straight days. That that's what it means when it says that he fasted for 40 days. And do you know what happened to him? He was hungry. He was hungry. Scripture says that. It says in in Matthew chapter 1, we're just going to look at a couple, Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, a couple verses here. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting for 40 days and nights, he was hungry. (laughs) Yes, he was. He was hungry. And then we read that the enemy, the devil, comes to him to tempt him. And what does he tempt them with? Essentially, the temptation of Jacob and Esau. We read Esau, Esau came back from being out in the wilderness, and he was hungry. Here we have Jesus being out in the wilderness, and he's hungry. The tempter 
came to him, or Jacob came to Esau and said to him, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. The tempter comes to Jesus and says, you're hungry, have something to eat. All you got to do is make a quick exchange with me. But then we see what Jesus does. Jesus responded in the face of the temptation of the moment, even in the screaming of his own hunger in his body. And he says in verse 4, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He had a choice. Jesus was presented with this choice that Esau was presented with. Satisfy your now, your moment, and sell out his future and his everything. But it wasn't just his future that Jesus would have been selling out. It was yours and mine. And so Jesus was hungry, desperately hungry, like literally starving. I'm hungry. I'm really hungry right now. And it's only been like, I don't know, what time is it? It's like noon. It's, well, I don't know, like 18 hours since I ate. Jesus is at the 40-day mark. Jesus is probably literally starving. But Jesus knew this isn't a moment, or this isn't about a moment. It was about his everything. It was about your everything and my everything. It all hung on this moment. Had Jesus fallen and failed? Had he taken the easy way out? Had he fallen into the trap and satisfied his momentary physical cravings? You and I would not have hope for redemption today. But Jesus did what Esau couldn't do. And he said, no. This, this momentary feeling isn't worth everything. That decision in that moment to say yes to his father and no to the tempter secured our salvation. Jesus did not lose his perfection in that moment. He did not somehow become the spotted lamb. He spotless lamb. And so we close with the last verse for our text today. Verse 34 of Genesis 25, which says, Then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. He ate and drank and he got up and left. So Esau despised his birthright. What despised really means there is he just, he didn't value it. He, he didn't care about it. He, he, he made a choice to devalue the importance of this thing. Esau didn't understand his everything. He didn't understand what he was giving up. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau is now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for a bowl of the red stuff, a, a bowl of beans, and so this is the place we come to today. You and I live in the middle of a tension between our now and what we think, what we want, and what we desire for our futures. God has a plan for you. He does. God has a purpose for you. He does. For your life, for your story, for your everything. You have been given a birthright from God. Listen to this from 1 Peter chapter 1. Praise be to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. 
and into an inheritance. That means your birthright. This is your birthright. This new birth that was just talked about. It comes with a birthright. It comes with an inheritance. This is, you have been given an, an, an inheritance in Christ because of the new life that we have in him. And what about this inheritance? It can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith shielded or who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation. You have this inheritance and essentially it's kept under lock and key. No one can get it. No one can take it. It is saved for you in heaven by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Praise Jesus. This is your future. This is what you've been given by God. But you are going to be confronted with a lifetime full of the red stuff. A solution for a moment. An easy way out. A chance to do it your way. The opportunity to do something you know you shouldn't do, but my goodness, doesn't that red stuff look good? My goodness, doesn't that fruit just smell so wonderful? You're going to be having an opportunity. You see, the devil cannot take your inheritance away. The devil cannot take away God's promises from you. He cannot take away your birthright. But he can try to get you to give it up. Jacob could not take away Esau's birthright. It didn't matter. He could not force him to give it to him. He could not force him somehow become, I'm the oldest now. He could not do that. But he could get him to give it up. God has an inheritance of peace for your life. But we're going to be tempted with a big bowl of worry and fear. God has a birthright of joy for your life. But you will be tempted with a bowl full of frustration and bitterness. God has a promise, a birthright of love on your life. But you will be tempted with a big, juicy, good-smelling bowl of anger and desire to lash out at others. God has a birthright for you. God has a plan and a purpose and a destiny for you to fulfill. But there's going to be a whole lot of bulls of red stuff along the way. And you're going to have a choice to choose God's destiny for your life or to choose a bull of the red stuff. The enemy is going to come like he did with Jesus. When you're hungry, when you're weak, and he's going to say to you, now, doesn't a bowl of this red stuff look good? He's going to come to you in a moment where you have the right to be upset. And he's going to say to you, hate them. Be awful. He's going to come to you where you have a right to be selfish. And say, you don't need to share. You don't need to be loving. He's going to come to you when you have a right to be afraid. And say, you need to live in fear. He's going to come to you when you have all of the right in the world to be something that you shouldn't be and encourage you to do that. He didn't come to Jesus when he was hungry and try and tempt him with something else. He didn't come to Jesus after he had just eaten and try to tempt him with food. He came to Jesus when he was hungry and said, don't you want something to eat? 
Every day you're going to be faced with these kinds of opportunities to choose your birthright or choose your moment, to choose your immediate or to choose your everything. The, the very last verse that I want to read to you today, and the, the very last thing after, after I read this verse, we're going to be done our, our, our message time and we're just going to pray. The very last thing that I want to say as part of my message to you is, is Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19, that says this. I have set before you life and death, blessings and curses. Now choose life. All you could see was darkness. Thanks again for listening to one of the audio messages from Cornerstone Church Airdrie. I pray that you were blessed by what God had to say in this message. If you would like to connect further with Cornerstone Church, there are a couple places you can go. First is our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com, and select the Airdrie campus. And some of the best ways to connect with us is through our social media channels. You can like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash cornerstoneairdrie. Follow us on Twitter at csairdrie. And on Instagram at cornerstoneairdrie. If you'd like to connect with the pastoral team at Cornerstone, you can do that again through our website, cornerstonefoursquarechurch.com. Click on the Airdrie campus, then click on the About Us on the main menu, and then one last click on Our Campus Pastors. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and get new messages delivered directly to you. We are so thankful to be able to share the gospel message of Jesus Christ with our community in Airdrie and with you today. At Cornerstone Church Airdrie, we are a family not by blood, but a family that's been bought by blood. And that family includes you. We follow Jesus together as family we go. The shadow of our old ways. But when you said it is finished, there was light when the stone rolled away. There was light when the stone rolled away. Now we see streams in the desert, rivers in the wasteland. Out of the dust you make us new creations. Breathe in our dry bones, empty every grain comes. Out of the dust you make us new creations. Make us new creations. All things beautiful. You make all things new. All things new. You make all things beautiful. You make all things